0: Hello, this is Wine Blast, uh, and I'm going to get very personal very quickly. Um, Susie, you're my wife, as well as a fellow master of wine. Um, am I allowed to recite you some poetry? You know, it, it, it speaks of love. well, of course. Among other things. Mm, yeah, go okay. All well, right, for it. great, here we go. Okay. Superlative wine, radiant and bright, rivaling the very sun's scintillation. While we may not know heaven in this life, still. We have paradise's libation So, critic, pour me one And sing for me For wine and I Are siblings till my expiration Should I die Bury me next to a vineyard Whose roots supply my bones' irrigation
1: Well, that is nice Do you like it? I like it But (laughs) I have to say Let's face it It's more about love for the wine Than love for me Which is a bit
0: disappointing I didn't specify where the love was directed Mm,
1: I can see that Um, (laughs) But I like it it's, it's good, funny. It? It's good. It's definitely
0: funny. It is really lovely, is it? So, so this <laughs> is the poetry of the famous Arab wine poet Abu Nuas, uh, translated by the brilliant Alex Rowell in his book Vintage Humour, the Islamic wine poetry of Abu Nuas. Um, and it leads us into our topic today, which is a sort of glimpse into a lesser known side of wine. Um, what might sort of loosely be termed wine from the Arab world.
1: Yep, so so this came up when the new listener got in touch, Aguiles, mm. or Agi Urad, and he got in touch to say he'd started up a new wine venture in the UK called The Other Grape, selling wines from the Arab world, which is his phrase, not ours. Um, Now, Aggie's aim is to try to break down stereotypes and promote these Mm -hmm. countries' proud winemaking history and their unique wines and indigenous Mm -hmm. grapes. And the first wines he's featuring in this new venture are from Algeria and Lebanon. Yeah,
0: and it really piqued our curiosity, didn't Mm -hmm. it? Particularly since I'm just back from filming in Lebanon for my new uh, wine and travel show, The Wild Side of Wine. So, Get your uh, plug in there. Well, it's, it's the first of many, so brace yourselves, people. Um, bear with me. What's it called? <laughs> so anyway, we wanted to put the two things together, really, didn't we? And take this chance to look at, at this side of wine, which is perhaps, I don't know, a bit misunderstood, mm. but it's Fascinating. Yeah,
1: I mean, so many questions spring to mind immediately. Mm. Like, yeah. you know, how does producing wine in a Muslim majority country work? Mm. You know, and come to that, mm. what really is the relationship between Islam and alcohol? I mean, the common misunderstanding is that it's banned in the Quran, but from or the common understanding, not misunderstanding, understanding, it's mm. is banned in the Quran. But from what we understand, that's not necessarily the reality of Muslim life.
0: No, and I know that this causes a memory. To rise from, mm. when we talked to Hugh Johnson, wasn't it back in um, yeah. season one? Season one, when yeah, he talked yeah. about that in terms of the history of wine. Yeah, anyway,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, beyond all this, you know, what are the wines actually like? Should we, as wine lovers, be searching them out?
0: Mm, yeah, and I, I suppose just to prove that this isn't uh, some deliberately obscure niche we're diving into, <laughs> yeah. as we are one of our one of our properly obscure we, niches. As we can do from time to time, um, you know, just to prove how relevant. The history, the story of wine in these countries is: Did you know that in the nineteen fifties, Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia accounted for two thirds of the entire international wine trade?
1: That is mind boggling, isn't it? <laughs> Unbelievable. And by that, you you mean exports, don't you?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I guess so. So, so you know, to, total overall global wine exports or wine shipped between countries. Uh, those three North African nations made up two thirds of total shipments. It's, but it's, 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 it's just quite eye-opening, isn't
1: it? It is. I mean, I mean, things, but let's face it: things have changed quite a bit since then. Yeah, obviously.
0: Well, so, so, but it's only sort of seventy years, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Okay. So, at that era, lots of lots of wine was drunk domestically in places like France, Italy, and Spain. So it wasn't being exported from the big producers, uh, and this was before the New World really got going. Mm-hmm. Um, Algeria and Tunisia and parts of Morocco at that time were still under French control, so most of the wine was being actually sent to France, almost like a dom- domestic production. But anyway, um, anyway, that's what we're going to get into. All of this, and, and more importantly, uh, we're going to get into what's happening now in these places.
1: Yeah. So, shall we start briefly with Lebanon, um, and then we can come mm. on to Aggie and okay. what he's doing?
0: Yeah, good idea. Good so, idea.
1: so just remind us what was your trip to Lebanon like?
0: It was amazing. I mean, properly mind blowing it was it was unlike anything i'd ever experienced in a wine context before, and that's saying something because we've been around the block haven't we yeah have. <laughs> <terms>. you know <laughs> we, we've touched it. on religion a bit already, but for me this almost felt like a wine pilgrimage in what way i don't know on on the one hand there's there's just so much history there. And history you didn't necessarily know, you weren't aware of in the wine context. So modern day Lebanon could have been one of the first places that humans migrating out of Africa along the Rift Valley first encountered the wild grapevine, you know, climbing up the giant cedar trees that are Lebanon's national symbol. You know, it's a hypothesis. But then you have the Phoenician, Phoenicians, uh, you know, the Lebanese of antiquity, who were traders par excellence and and they sailed out of port cities along the coast like uh, Beirut, uh, what is Beirut, Sidon, Tyre and and Byblos today and they took wine and the vine to places we now think of as the heartland of wine like Mm -hmm. France, Spain, Italy, Cyprus, also sort of North Africa. So the Lebanese if you like gave the gift of wine to the world.
1: And then and the temple of Bacchus in Baalbek in the Beccar mm. Valley is famous as a historical landmark in Lebanon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah
0: you're quite right to pick up on that because that is, and I, I remember talking to you about this when I got back, but you know, that was what really crystallised this feeling of pilgrimage for me, going to this place. You know, I'd seen the pictures, I, I'd heard the stories, but nothing came anywhere close to the feeling of walking into the Temple of Bacchus in Baalbek you know, you're in this high altitude plateau, which is the Bekar Valley. You've got Syria just over the mountains on one side. You've got snow on the mountain peaks in the distance. This was in May. So, you know, still, it was warm. It's prime Hezbollah territory, yellow flags fluttering everywhere. And then you you come across this monumental, stunning, epic Roman temple celebrating Bacchanalia and wine and partying and mad times. It, It just sort of pops up out of nowhere. And it Totally bowls you over you know it, it just feels like a holy site for wine that every wine lover should go go at least go to at least once in their life i I, I think certainly we,
1: recommend yeah, it. I, we'd all love to I mean but let's face it Lebanon isn't the easiest place to get to and travel around is it you no, know no, if you that, did that, want that, to go
0: that's true sadly you know it is doable and I'd encourage people to go because sometimes you're scared of these things but Lebanon mm. you know needs visitors and it is doable it can feel a bit scary at times um, there are, tend to be lots of military types with scarily big guns at a regular checkpoints
1: you're ringing and telling me that, and thinking, mm, not sure. I'm happy you're there,
0: frankly. Yeah, but I, you know, it was election time um, when we went, so I think there was an increased army presence while we were there. Plus, I think you know we were nervous because we had big cameras and, and a drone, which is very much a no-no there, and could have got us into serious trouble. So, so maybe in we were. Why? What? In what way can it get you into trouble? Uh, oh, oh well, I think they assume that drones mean you're a spy. Um, and there's not much discussion about that if you get caught with one. So, so actually, we, we did. I did mention this in our in our Armenian episode, but we did have to hire a local drone operator, uh, which generally never our director never never does that. But uh, you know, this drone operator was part of the Armenian uh, community in Lebanon, and he had, seemed to have friends in the army. Mm, um, was good. So he tended to smooth things over for us. Even <laughs> though it was always a little bit worrying when he kind of disappeared off for a while to sort of. When you ask him where you've been, so I was just seeing my friends in the army. You think I'm not going to ask? <laughs> I don't know what's going on? I mean,
1: I suppose it probably doesn't. It just add to the drama of the place, the feeling of adventure. I mean, yeah. do you know what? You're yes. absolutely right. It does. It does. Totally. Living on the edge. You know, I think
0: life is many things in Lebanon, but boring just isn't one of them. No. There's a lot of drama there, but
1: I suppose it, that image of, of violence of conflict is one that Lebanon yeah. struggles to shed, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think for many people, Lebanon is associated with, with conflict, you know, whether it was a civil war, um, 1975 to 1990, or the outbreaks of violence since, you know, it, it, that's, that's the image, isn't it? But but, mm. but equally, that's not the whole picture. It never is. It's, it's not the true picture of the place. You know, you go to places like Byblos or Batroun, or uh, you could be anywhere in the Mediterranean, frankly, you know, these beautiful fishing villages with beaches and boats and beer, and it's really chilled and, and beautiful. So
1: where, I mean, Explain where does the conflict come from?
0: Yeah, so th- it's important to touch on this, I think. It's a really good question. Part of it is that Lebanon is just a melting pot of religions and communities. So many people in, in one place. Uh, partly because it's such a nice place. You know. you, I mean, you look at the lists of people who've conquered or invaded or just been there over the years, and it's as long as you're on. Um, you know, Egyptians, Assyrians, Greeks, Romans, Crusaders, Ottomans, French. It goes on. You know. So Lebanon used to be a majority Christian country. But I think now it's majority Muslim or it's accepted to be stuff, even though I haven't done a sort of proper census for a while. And I think one of the key dynamics lately, and it's really important to understand Lebanon in this context, but it's been the external forces. So, for example, Palestinian refugees coming in after the creation of Israel um, and and, and its aftermath. And also, you know, Syrian refugees, There's I think over a million Syrian refugees in Lebanon right now who have Mm. been fleeing the war there. So you've got the influence of Iran, Syria, Israel, you know, in this sort of really quite complicated place with so many communities. It's just a sort of tinderbox.
1: Mm. And you saw the effect of that conflict on wine when you were there, didn't you?
0: Yeah, that's the really important thing. With this series, what we're trying to do is look look at a culture, a place, and, and its people through the the, the bottom the of a wine glass. of wine, yeah. Exactly. So try to make sense of it all. So, I've, for example, I visited um, Jill and Najib Boutros at Chateau Bellevue in a place called Bhamdoon. I had to work on my pronunciation of that. Still, have Chateau
1: that. Bellevue sounds like you're in, in the middle of Bordeaux or something, doesn't it?
0: It does a bit. Well, the, the French influence, the French mm. controlled uh, Lebanon for a long time. So there's yeah. a lot of uh, sort of Francophone stuff and, and French culture and history there. Yeah. But I mean, when you say Bellevue, beautiful view, Bahamdoun is high up in these mountains and you have the most beautiful views. And, I mean, these are such special places. Anyway, but, you know, they, they Jill and Naji there, are using wine as a way to rebuild their community. Um, which is a historic wine making area, but it became the front line, one of the front lines during the civil war um There was just massive destruction there and and there was a massacre of the villages as well, very, very sadly um Naji showed me the vineyard where his you know for example his mother 's cousin had been blown up by a cluster bomb when he was tending the vines there, mm. which oh. is very, very sad.
1: that must have been pretty intense to to visit and be there with them. It it really and was.
0: It felt very. I felt very privileged to be there. That they were sharing something so personal. Um, but you need know, so so much in Lebanon is just intense. I think that's one word I would use to sum mm. the country up. It is intense. You know, and and, and then Naji you know, he also showed me the site where his grandfather's hotel once did, which was the Hotel Bellevue, um, and very sadly, you know, it had been used as target practice by tanks and artillery in the war and now all that remained were fragments of tiles and amphorae sort of scattered around in the vines because he, he's planted a vineyard there to sort of revive it. And, mm. you know, he was in tears telling telling me about mm. all this, un- understandably so.
1: I mean, Lebanon's had such tough times, hasn't it? And um, we've touched on this before when we did an episode after that huge explosion mm. in Beirut, mm. but also talking about the very serious economic issues.
0: Yeah. And this is where it gets really serious. You know, I had one wine producer say to me that the situation now is far worse than during the Civil War for, for most people. Uh, I think the Civil War affected you know, localised people really, really badly, but elsewhere things, life could carry on. But because of the economic collapse in the country now, people's money has just completely devalued. Banks are basically banning people from accessing their savings. Can you imagine that? Mm-hmm. You know, the bank telling you, right, your, your, your money is now is worth much but- less than what it was, and you can only access a small fraction of it yeah. you know so it's 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 paralyzing the country
1: but is this where wine wine can actually help
0: yeah yeah absolutely so you know we did touch on this i think in the episode you mentioned as well um you know selling stuff abroad means they can earn precious hard currency they call it sort of fresh dollars um there's not much in Lebanon that can do that, actually. A lot, you know, a lot of it is service industry, so there's not a huge export industry. But wine is one thing that can, and, and it also presents this wonderful uh, perspective on the culture, is this ancient winemaking culture. So you know, we wine lovers can help, and and wines, the wines themselves are so exciting. At the okay, moment. okay. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. Go so on. so briefly, you know, I think the thing to understand about Lebanon, we've touched on it already, is is that so much of it is mountainous, you know, at high altitude. So yes, you've got this baking sort of Middle Eastern sun, Levantine sun, but you also get the freshness of altitude. So these two things together are quite magical. So the wines tend to have lots of character, tend to be quite extrovert in style, but that freshness of altitude means they're very balanced and kind of foody and cultured. And so I think, you know, right now we're seeing a renaissance, of Lebanese wines, um, people fighting against the odds to have made these things happen. Um, you know, I think the foundations for the modern era were laid when the French controlled Lebanon, as we've sort of mentioned. Uh, and, that and that was between was the two between old the wars. Between the two old Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, You know, they brought in Grenache and Sanso, but they'd been around before. The French Jesuits had been around before in the late 19th century and sort of brought this stuff over. Um, But then in the 80s and 90s, more trendy sort of international varieties began to be planted, as everyone was doing around the world. It's got to be Cabernet or Chardonnay, you know, otherwise you would know one. But what's happening now is much more interesting. It's that producers are really focusing on what makes them unique. You know, how to make wines with a sense of place that are different.
1: Yeah, and we and we tasted one of these, didn't we, from a grape that was new to me called Obedee. Yeah, Obedi. we did. Yes,
0: and we're going to come on to that in a yeah. bit, aren't we? Yeah. Um, I tasted quite a bit of stuff like this when I was there, you know. So... You know, reviving indigenous or local grape varieties is a key dynamic, one key dynamic there. You know, not just Abedi, but Mirroir, Macessi, um, Aswad Garech. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about this in a bit. Um, but that's part of, I think, a bigger trend. Just create a sense of, of real identity for Lebanese wines. And that's what's really exciting.
1: Yeah, it really. I mean, it really is an exciting place, isn't it? And you know, not just <laughs> Not just in terms of wine, as you've said, but generally it's yeah. exciting it just
0: it just is i hope i'm i hope i'm communicating that cuz it just i think yeah that's what it was that was what this trip was for me it was just tremendously exciting you know i was lucky enough to have great guides I had michael karam the you know one, well, no, the Lebanese wine expert. I think
1: he made the, the driving exciting as well. He made well. the driving very exciting too. That's another
0: <laughs> podcast. Uh, maybe we could do a live one uh, from Michael's car. Um, but no, he was he, just a font of knowledge. He, just just the most amazing man about Lebanon. And he was obviously on our podcast for. Uh, also, uh, Barbara Massad, a food writer and brilliant communicator. And Barbara, you know, she, she talked to me very movingly about how difficult life in Lebanon is Barbara's based there at the moment um you know her children have all emigrated for example um but she says you know she'd lived in America when she was young and she found life there to be and apologies to our lovely american listeners but for Barbara she found life in America quite quite dull because it was just sort of she found it very repetitive and, and sanitized having come from Lebanon so she's gone back and and you know she 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 described it as you know life in Lebanon was hard but it was Living,
1: and would you say that was what you experienced there? Because it sounds like it was. No, it
0: really was. Yeah, it really was. You know, I, I was supping, stand-up paddleboarding in the Mediterranean with a glass of rose in my hand. One moment,
1: A different meaning for supping, really. <laughs> <I thought laughs> supping <that>. and supping. <laughs>
0: I was double. You supping. were double. Supping. Were not very You're well. you was multitasking. I was actually, oh I was actually falling into the ocean and <laughs> splashing rosé all over my face more than I was doing anything else. But anyway, uh, you have to wait for the film to see that uh, gem. Uh, you know, then I was being plunged into power cut darkness. The next, you know, uh, you go into a hotel and they'd say, "Welcome, Mr. Richards," and then all the lights would go off. You plunged into darkness and they'd say, "There'd be a pause," and they'd say, "Welcome to Lebanon." <laughs> um, you know, but I, I ate some of the best goat's cheese. Ever in my life. And I'm not a massive goats cheese fan. That was maybe after picking up the goats. Was quite made that quite magical. But, you know, visiting Chateau Muzar's one million bottle plus cellar. Um, you know, experiencing the horrors, genuine horrors of Lebanese haggis. Let's not go there. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, meeting... there are more bigger horrors in Lebanon than haggis. There are. Well, mm, yeah, no, there are. Of course. This was just a particular horror for me. Focusing um, on food here. I, I sort of met some Syrian refugees. We did some se- secret filming, you know terrifying car journeys you've, you've touched on uh, but but also you know the best falafel ever ever
1: well we look forward to seeing the results mm. um so when's the wild side of wine coming out yeah
0: thank you for the for, for the setup for the plug um we, we we've so we filmed in Georgia and Lebanon now we're going to film in South Africa and Chile and then we'll have the first series done uh, which will then look to sell to the streamers and, and national broadcasters you know the highest bidders coming with pots of gold
1: But there are sneak previews available at the moment, aren't there?
0: so you can get a cheeky preview of the show on winemasters.tv, which is the production company behind it. Um, They've got the Georgia trailer and programmes out there now, Um, some of it's behind a paywall, but... There are bits that are free to view. I can't remember quite what at the moment. Mm. But uh if you want to get a taste of it, do head over there. You know, and Lebanon will be coming soon.
1: So we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and we're gonna taste a wine you brought back from your trip in due course too, aren't yes. we? Yeah. But first we're talking <laughs> yes. about and to Aggie Urad, who set up The other grape.
0: Yeah, so Aggie actually works in solar energy, but he's a Brit of Algerian descent. He was born in Algeria, but grew up in what he describes as sunny Birmingham. (laughs) Um, Now, Aggie felt that his homeland and you know other countries like it, for example, in southern and eastern Mediterranean, talk about the north Mediterranean a lot, but not the south Mm. and east. They were being sort of unfairly forgotten or underappreciated, you know, simply because they were majority Muslim countries. So, you know, he saw a gap in the market, um, given people are interested, and I think this is true, in things that are new and authentic and intriguing. Mm-hmm. And so he launched uh, this wine subscription club and magazine to get the wines, the history, you know, the people better known.
1: And there's a, mm-hmm. there's quite a personal side to this story as well, isn't there?
0: Yeah. So Aggie writes quite movingly on his website about how, as someone of vaguely Muslim appearance, in in his words... Coming of age in the era of the war on terror, he, you know, suffered public humiliation at the hands of the authorities. Um, He describes developing imposter syndrome within European society, which is his own society. Uh, At the same time, he was rediscovering his country of birth, Algeria, and, and, and what he calls its sort of schizophrenic attitude towards alcohol. You know, it's a historic product in the country, and many, many sort of people there do drink. But it's often brushed under the carpet because it's considered improper or or un-Islamic. Um,
1: So, I mean, interesting though, going back to what you say about his experiences in Europe and the UK, um, I was just reading for this podcast, a a summary of a new poll about Islamophobia mm -hmm. in Britain. It was by um, hyphen Savanta Comres, excuse me, and and it found that 69% of UK Muslims have experienced some form of Islamophobia in the workplace. And just Mm -hmm. having a Muslim name makes it less likely to get a job or find a flat or get insurance. Mm -hmm. And this Islamophobia is apparently widespread in schools, in politics, and the media, and yet the same survey also re- revealed more positive aspect to this scenario. That's, that's
0: really interesting. So, so how yeah. the figures are really interesting, but how so posi- in terms of positivity. positive? So,
1: well, on the positive side, fifty-three percent of British Muslims said there was an improved acceptance of Muslims in the UK now. Mm. Um, 93% of Muslims felt they belonged to Britain. Mm. Uh, There was optimism. 57% thought young Muslims would be more successful than their parents. Um, There are some great Muslim role models, obviously, in public Mm, life. So the picture is nuanced, it's fair to say. Mm. And there are challenges, but there's also hope. And and all of this is really interesting context when we're talking about Aggie's yeah, business.
0: Absolutely, because that's also about sort of hope and challenges too, isn't it? Um, you know, Aggie says it's a way of empowering Algeria. You know, it's, he says its wine industry is kind of a shadow of its former self in danger almost of disappearing. But there is quality there, you know, and it would be a crying shame to lose it. You know, plus it can give a lot of people work. An income.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So and so you mentioned some stats before about the surprising mm. size of Algerian wine a century or so ago. Yeah, yeah. And and just to back that up, Algeria has grown vines historically. The Phoenicians may well have been responsible mm, for mm, those. Yeah. Um, then it became a French colony from 1830 to 1962. And this was the big push. Its its wine industry grew from 17,000 hectares of vineyard in the 1870s to 110,000 hectares oh. in 1890, which is similar to the size of Bordeaux Bordeaux's vineyard yeah. area today.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a sort of almost tenfold growth. Yeah,
1: I mean. yeah. and And the catalyst was the phylloxera pest that decimated French vineyards. So so they turned to Algeria to bolster their supply.
0: Yeah, okay. we are going to come on to this with, in, in, yeah. in my discussion with Agni too. Yeah,
1: because by, by 1938, the Algerian vineyard was over 400,000 hectares. I mean, that's the size of the... Entire US wine vineyard today. So actually it went from what
0: was it quite, seventeen? So seventeen thousand in the eighteen seventies. Then we went to one hundred and
1: ten, and by by the by nineteen thirty eight we're at four hundred thousand hectares, which is you know. Quite a jump um, and, you know, quite a thought. And so in the mid-1950s, winemaking was the leading sector of the colonial economy in Algeria. It was half of Algeria's exports by value. And a lot of that went to France to be blended into their wines. So your Burgundy or Bordeaux from back in the day may have had a distinctly Algerian accent. <laughs> Love that. Which is just it, a thought, isn't
0: it? It is fascinating. It's fascinating. I mean, it's
1: something we kind of know of in the wine world but mm. you you know this this puts it properly into a bit more it's interesting
0: isn't it you could, con- you could dig context. out a venerable sort of bordeaux burgundy from back in the day and actually yeah. it would have had a lot of algerian wine nice there. deeply colored not saying all of it would have but no but it's but, but, yeah. still an interesting thought it's isn't possible it? isn't yeah, it. it Anyway, okay so so i think that way in which algerian and french wine intersect uh and how all this is tied up in the genesis of Appalachian Controller is something that I discussed with Aggie. So this is a good point to bring Aggie in. Uh, and I started by asking him about his business, The Other Grape, and how he's managing or aiming to make a virtue of lots of challenges, you know, like Algeria's complicated relationship with wine or Britain's complicated relationship with immigration and racism.
2: So it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely an adventure. But I think the the way we try and do it is to really bring the human stories to the fore so wine production in these in these in this region in these countries does not for does not follow the same storyline if you want as wine production in in bordeaux or um, you know in uh, even in even in like southern um even in southern italy like uh, puglia which um you know or Sicily, which resemble in a in many ways the same sort of terroir, the same kind of heat, as well, and um, you know, kind of pastoral nature of uh, many of the the countries in the on the southern and eastern shores of the Mediterranean. the The societal human stories are very different. You know, we have in in Lebanon, we have a lot of uh, economic and political crises that that mean that. Winemakers have to jump through hoops to to bring the you know just to be able to produce their wine um, every year in Algeria. You have um, you know seasonal workers who are who are have pressure put on them by imams who are the you know equivalent of of priests um, to to not work. You know picking by picking grapes. You're you're it's haram. It's illegal in the eyes of in the eyes of God. And so. You shouldn't be doing this but then many of these seasonal workers are, are students who need the money for you know for, for school and school supplies and so you have these kind of dichotomies right that, that raise a lot of a lot of questions that wouldn't be asked in, in in europe if you want so um yeah this is this is one of the ways we're trying to really show that there's no there's no contradiction uh between the two and uh, we have a long way to go
0: I'm really interested in this, and it's an area I don't know very much about. But the issue of Islam and and wine or alcohol, I understand it's, it's quite um, there is there has been historically a lot of discussion about this. What, what's your take? Can you be, if I'm being very simplistic, can you be a good Muslim and drink wine, or or not, or and what about the secular nature of it, um, as well as the economic sort of issues? Can you just dive into that a little bit for us?
2: Um, sure. So the the Quran makes a distinction between two different types of um, of alcohol, Nabid and Nabid and Khamar. Um, and so, you know, the Nabid being maybe the, the lighter one, um, and Khamar the if you want know, the, the stronger one. And there were different schools of, of thought in Islam that that state that one is um, acceptable to drink, the, the the other isn't. Of course today um that isn't really the same um distinction between between the two but ultimately i mean it's 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 more than it's a topic that uh, i think deserves a lot more um, time if you want to to discuss and there's a lot of space for academic study into into this as well um, but but ultimately we see the relationship between god and, um, and and the person is one that's you know vertical so it really is up to the person whether they want to um whether they want to to drink or not and ultimately you know the 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 idea behind um not drinking alcohol is because even um the prophet muhammad's companions um like went to to pray to pray next to him after having um drunk alcohol and so they weren't in the right state of mind um you know to really connect with god and so this is why um you know you you shouldn't be drinking because it clouds your it clouds your judgment of course through throughout history throughout time different um, you know different caliphates, um, different forms of, of, of Islamic um, government have been more and less tolerant to, to alcohol it's also been a good way um, of collecting taxes um, as well because these regions like I said produce a lot of um, a lot of alcohol uh, you know a lot of wine uh, even of course distilled spirits um, alcohol is, an Arabic word as well, alcohol. Um, so, it's um, it's one that in, for the past, you know, uh, now, what's it, um, 14, 1500 years, um, has still, um, if, you know, it's a question that still divides, right? And even today, within different um, countries, uh, Muslim-majority countries, you see different attitudes um, towards alcohol. So, there is no right or wrong answer. Um, it's just, yeah, it requires, um, it, it depends on the, if you want, the political system at the time.
0: And you also touch on the economics over there, you know, um, Algeria, there was, a, you know, we see French um, rule, as there was in, in Lebanon, both countries you, you've, you've started out with on, on this project. What's the, you know obviously um, wine growing means labour. It means economic activity. It means taxation, as as you say. Um, what's that aspect to it? You know, are we going to see a, a potential revival in wine in these countries? Uh, a sort of you know muddling along approach to Muslim majority rule and and um, alcohol or wine as a as, a, as an important economic uh, product and also export is that is that is that something that's going to do you think grow in the future?
2: So this uh, this question very much depends on on where you are. Just to to quickly, if you want, put um, if to connect the two, Algeria and Lebanon, because these are the two countries that we we started off with. The other grape is for now just a pilot, um, but we are looking to expand to to other countries, um, and within the same same countries as well. But the wine the wine trade uh, in Algeria and Lebanon they follow the same trajectory. In fact, they were started by the, so the international, if you want, varieties that we now know um, of, such as Grenache, saint Carignan. So these grape varieties um, that came from, um, you know, the, the Rhone and Southern Europe um, were actually planted in Algeria and Lebanon um, by, uh, I think they were Jesuit priests. So the industries that exist today um, actually Originate from from these moments, um, and then of course it was the kind of the French in both Algeria and Lebanon that pushed these um, pushed these industries, and they provided for the most part the the demand um, for for wine in both Algeria and Lebanon, Algeria especially because it was you know a huge French colony, and um, Lebanon was more protected, but still French servicemen. Um, and women, you know, were there providing the, the bulk of the demand for the wine. Um, following the, the departure of the French, the, the Lebanese, um, because they have a strong um, Christian you know, community, um, as well as Armenian, as, as you mentioned in your previous podcast. Um, but also, um, you know, quite, quite a cosmopolitan outlook in, in Beirut, the Beiruti crowd. Um, you know, is one that, that loves to, to party and just enjoy a good time. I think they're very French in that in that aspect. Um, so they, Lebanon and Algeria, followed different trajectories um, following, the, the, following the, the departure of the French. So whereas in Lebanon, the industry had existed, you know, wine, there had been a strong local wine industry making Vandu, sweet wine. Um, up until then, the, the industry was happily carried on by, um lebanese people people like uh you know um Serge and stuff so um you know these were people that started wineries when the french were there and so carried on afterwards it, with the algerians it was it was a different matter it was more political and in 1971 the president of algeria um, actually uprooted most of the vines at the time just despite the french they had a political spat and Algeria was still the fourth biggest producer of wine at the time. So that's the equivalent of Joe Biden taking, you know, uh, you know basically unilateral decision to uproot, um, you know, over half of, of America's vines because America is currently the fourth biggest producer of wine in the world. So you see drastically different um, trajectories. And that plays out into today's, um, if you want, outlook um, Lebanon has a vibrant um, really quite dynamic um, wine industry that's really promoting now um, indigenous indigenous grapes. They really see the importance of it to to its economy um, whereas Algeria has been stuck in a stuck in a you know oil and gas rut, classic hydrocarbons uh, uh, resource curse um, and now we have a few people such as myself who are really looking to you know diversify diversify the economy. It's really important for the survival of um, not only Algeria, but the same you, can be said of Tunisia and other countries as well, where, yeah, economically you need to, you need to be, you need to be pushing your own um, your own production.
0: I'm interested what you said there about Algeria's history. Uh, I want you to talk a bit more about that because Lebanon, we sort of know, uh, you know, the Phoenicians back in the day were the original wine merchants taking this the vine all around the Mediterranean and sort of pr- giving the gift of wine, if you like, to the world. Um, but Algeria is not someone we talk about very much in terms of wine history. But at one point, it was one of the world's biggest wine producers.
2: Absolutely. And this is so... Algeria is an is a fascinating place, a place very hard to get to, um, but once you're, once you're there, you see it all these like structures, all these um, you know this architecture from political entities of the past just really like show themselves to you. And part of this um, part of this experience, if you especially if you go to the west, but everywhere honestly everywhere in, in northern Algeria, but the west is wine country in inverted commas. You see old wineries, old colonial wineries, both abandoned and rehabilitated, Um, so that are still in use today. You see old wineries. You see um, towns that were built around um, all these wineries. So um, you know, in Algeria, the French made essentially um, the economy go round on wine. So. It wasn't their intention. They didn't want anything to... um, They didn't want their colonies to compete against the mainland economy. And of course, we know the French were making a lot of wine. And so they had actually tried to um, plant cotton and tobacco and all these kind of colonial um, crops to complement the the economy. But in fact, they found that the wine... uh, Sorry, the vine worked the best. And so before... Algeria uh, became French. or the, the French entered in eighteen thirty, but it, it was very experimental the first few decades. Vines had started to be planted, but then it was in eighteen seventy nine when there was the phylloxera, um, the phylloxera pest. I'm sure I think um, I'm sure your listeners probably know a thing or two about the phylloxera pest. Usually, I have to explain it, but it, it decimated French um, vineyards and. The, re- the the one fact um, that came out of that that shows the extent to which it was devastating for the french was that the, they were no longer self-sufficient in wine so they could no longer um, supply the, their own demand and so this is what really gave a boost to um, viticulture in, in Algeria and so here you see um, you know, between 1880 and, eight, and 1900, production go from 100 million liters to 500 million liters. And yeah, so what we what we see is that Algeria become the fourth biggest producer of wine in the world. Right, they were at, at the at zenith. The um, Algeria was producing over two billion liters of wine a year. On average, it was about it was, it was about it was just over one billion, but it reached the point where they were producing two billion. Um, and they were comfortably the biggest exporter because most of it was exported in, in inverted commas to to France as well.
0: So where was all this? What was all this wine doing? Because you know you don't sort of I don't I wasn't around back then, but you don't sort of remember many famous sort of Algerian crew. Was was a lot of this being blended into French wine?
2: Absolutely, absolutely. So you know it was mostly so Algeria, the you know was eighty five percent Muslim, but it was the fourth biggest producer of wine in the, in the world, right? So most of it did go to to france and it was known as de coupage and it was blended with um it was blended with french wine just to add to its kind of you know add to the alcohol content add to the color make it make it a bit stronger because um, of course as as you know um wine that's grapes that grow in hotter hotter climates have more sugar which turn into more alcohol upon fermentation and and so this is really this was really the primary use of of Algerian um, wine if you want and a fantastic side note as well is that this was one of the if you want the the triggers that led to the appellations as we as we know them today
0: so what happened was in the late 19th century when french france was ravaged by phylloxera algeria stepped into the breach to supply them with the wine they needed but then fast forward to the 1930s uh, the French said, "Well, thank you very much. We've had that. We've kind of worked out a way to get over phylloxera. Now we're going to uh, create these laws which protect our wine and mean you know you're not welcome anymore. Is that right?
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so what's funny is that in, in Algeria they were um, one of the first to, if you want, implement um, a US rootstock. Um, you know, just uh, rather than like chemical treatments, and there was a lot of fighting between them." Um, but this meant that they were able to produce a lot, a lot of the wine, and so they were able to then export it, and this um, led to <laughs> a bit of a diplomatic uh, spat between a, a UK importer called Robert Leakey, and this was the Robert Leakey affair, who claimed that Algerian wine, because it was used in van der in Bordeaux, with Bordeaux wines, um, was as good as Bordeaux. And so this... You can imagine the French wine producers being as, as restive and protective as, as they are, really hated this. Um, and so they fought to protect um, the, the identity of, of their wine from you know, imitators, which culminated into the Appalachians in the 1930s, as, as we know today. So it really was the impetus um, really came from Algerian wine. <laughs> because um because there was so much of it, and it was mixed with uh with uh Bordelais wine yeah.
0: how fascinating how fascinating, but now you're trying to sort of revive um this this proud wine making legacy of of these countries, which is you know in some cases slightly fallen into sad sort of um not being very well known but you know, with the other grape this this new business you're you call it a a concept at the moment that you're looking to hoping to roll out. You know, if you were going to choose one wine which you sort of selected initially to, to epitomize what you're trying to do, what would it be and why?
2: So I would, I'd like to go for, I'd like to go to, for an Algerian just out of, um, out of personal maybe preference. But I think I'll, I'll, I'll go with the Lebanese because I think it really epitomizes the, um, the, the search for identity. And so this is um, for me the, the Obedi grape. And this is um, a grape that is used, you know, that's been used for centuries to make sweet wine, Vendou, in, you know, kind of um, religious, uh, religious settings um, churches and um, stuff like this. So it was also a grape that was like, kind of uprooted by the French um, when they first came because they, they thought it was harsh to, to work with. But now we see a renaissance um, of, of like, these Lebanese indigenous grapes. Because they're being turned into dry wine, and they add this totally different flavor to, um, you know, this like like flavor profile to what to what you're used to, um, you know. So this obedi grape, when it's turned into um, a dry style wine, it, it it retains that kind of almost sweetness, creaminess um, character to it. You know, you have that, you know, like hints of of honeydew with underlying um, creaminess, and I think it's perfect for people who you know, prefer um, a kind of not sweet, but almost fuller bodied kind of style white wine, um, you know, the kind of like sweeter Riesling compared to a drier um, style white. And it's not just the Abedi, there's the Merwa as well. There are other indigenous grapes that the Lebanese are, are creating and so uh, are turning into dry style wines. And, you know, these things take a long time. You you can't just plant one one year and then it grows and, and then you're like, oh yeah, I've perfected, I've perfected it. The story of indigenous grapes is 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 really one that plays out over many years.
0: So you've got this this wonderful business. Uh, you're doing a um, a magazine with it. Now I've read I've read it, and it's great. Um, but in this magazine, you've published this this fantastic poem, and I'd like you, if you can, to very kindly share it with us. Uh, maybe give it a tiny bit of a preface as
2: well. This comes from a book by Alex Raoul, who is a, a British journalist, um, incredible person, and he's written a book called Vintage Humor, the Islamic wine poetry of Abu Nuwas*. And, you know, we were talking about um, Islam and wine um, <laughs> you know, earlier on. We could do many, honestly, many, many episodes about that. But um, essentially, um, Abu, Abu Nuwas. Um, lived in the like 700 800s and he um, was half iraqi half um, half Iranian today and he was this <laughs> quite quite um, like incredible character who you know wrote uh, poetry about um, debauchery drinking wine sleeping with with um, with both men and and women and you know, we seem to we think about the um, the past. You know, the the first Islamic um, caliphates as maybe being um, very religious, but in fact um, they partook in in parties and drinking. And um, Abu Nuwas received, you know, state state patronage from um, um, I think Muhammad al-Amin, um, who was um, an Abbasid uh, caliphate, and so he has a huge, huge. If you want a collection of poems called uh, Hamriyat, and it's not just um, which have sorry wine poetry in Arabic is known as Hamriyat, so there's even a name. You know, it goes to show how much uh, wine was pervasive in, in, in this time. Um, and he's not the only one. Um, there are many. Um, Omar Khayyam is another uh, well known uh, well known wine wine poet. But um, so yeah, I have this book, and for the magazine we wanted to choose. Um, one of the poems that we, we liked and put it in there and Alex um, graciously accepted so um, yeah uh, I can go ahead and read uh, read one for you I think it's, it's my favorite <laughs> someone came to reproach me with an innovation a plan of which I can bear zero toleration urging me off wine because the fate of he who tastes its eternal damnation these rebukers bring me nothing but resolve to grant wine my lifelong dedication. Shall I spurn it when God himself hasn't and our own caliph shows its veneration? Superlative wine, radiant and bright, rivaling the very sun's scintillation. While we may not know heaven in this life, still we have paradise's libation. So critic, pour me one and sing for me, for wine and I are siblings till my expiration. Should I die? Bury me next to a vineyard. His roots supply my bones irrigation
0: i'm not sure there's much that can be added to that aggie thank you very much indeed
2: no worries i want to say that that is a translation by um alex ral so again thanks to thanks to him for that thank you
1: I love that wine poetry is a thing in Arab culture. (laughs) And also, interesting what he says about a vertical relationship between God and the person. So decisions Mm. about alcohol being personal.
0: Yeah, I'm sure there probably would be people who disagree with that. But uh, it was really interesting to hear that from him. You know, it's, it's... I think there are probably entire books and podcasts that could explore these issues, um, which we probably know very little about. But it's just really interesting to get a general perspective on it, isn't it, from mm. from from Aggie. So he also, uh, just, to, just to say this, by the way, he he wants to expand to include wines from places like uh, Palestine, Tunisia, Albania. That's on his radar, you know, and sort of mm. grow the focus on indigenous grapes and sort of unique wines. That's, mm. that's where he's thinking.
1: And I just to pick up on something we mentioned before the interview when we heard more from Aggie, I do think it's fascinating how Algerian wine may have been one of the prime drivers behind the initial development of the Appalachian Controle yeah, system. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Did you know that? I mean, yeah, I exactly, did not because, know that. So, because so much of it was being blended into French wine, you know, mm. maybe they were worried it was going to start to rival their, their mm. classics. And, yeah, so,
1: yeah. You know. So, your fine Burgundy or Bordeaux may have been happily beefed up with some sturdy Algerian vino for quite a while yeah. in the early twentieth century, but then there came a time when the French started to worry about the consequences and became more protectionist. Yeah, because, understandably,
0: the, the Appellation system is inherently protectionist, isn't mm. it? So that that's what became the AOC, AOC system. Now, the AOP, mm. I think, is that right? Goodness. Anyway, um, but um, you know that then. Ultimately, led to the rug being pulled from under the Algerian wine industry's feet, didn't it? You know, their markets collapsed, and I guess instead of carrying on like Lebanon, you know, it's sadly sort of fallen into slight disrepair.
1: Now, Aggie also mentioned indigenous grapes and interesting wines, mm. and we have a couple of bottles here, don't we?
0: We've got bottles. People. We've got bottles we're always. Packing, we're packing we bottles. Go. So yeah, Aggie. Very kindly sent us a few uh, through a few of the wines he's currently offering through the other grape. Uh, the first one we've already mentioned, haven't we? Is the Arbeid grape uh, mm. made by Chateau Umsiat. It's 2018, 125 percent.
1: hasn't you got it there. So I have got it here. It's, all it's, um, it's um, mm. so this this has bags of. Character. It's really, it's succulent but easy drinking. Um, you've got aromas of orange blossom, baked mm. apricot. Mm. There's a there's a sort of a richness to the texture. It's quite a sunny wine, because, yes. and then just that gentle. Bitter twist on the finish, yeah. you know. I think it'd be great with meze. And actually, in Aggie's magazine, there's a, there's a, a a recipe for a sort of a baked cauliflower with tahini and pomegranate and oh. coriander that's a, described as a meze dish. And mm. you think, wow, that would be really nice it's with this wine. Really, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. It's just, it's really nice to see these indigenous varieties coming through now. You know, and we'll be seeing more of them, I think, mm. in the future. And I think in this wine you do get that sense of of Lebanese wines having real character. What I commented on earlier, don't yeah. you? they're not boring. This is not a boring wine. No, um, you get that sunny sort of sun ripened flavors, but you also get the balance. Um, yeah. It's not a high acid wine, is it? But it, it, no, it's the but, but it, you wouldn't it's a expect style. that necessarily. But it's very you? balanced. Um, you know, and if you remember, we talked about Michael Karam earlier, but he was saying on the previous episode on Lebanon, which he featured him
1: in season one, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah.
0: Yes, um, he was saying how Lebanese whites are, in his view, almost more exciting than the reds at the moment and well worth trying for that reason. And a couple of other winemakers backed him up on that, which is really interesting. We think Mm. of Lebanon as reds. Mm. Actually, the whites are really Mm. exciting right now.
1: Yeah, that's it. it It's surprising, isn't Mm. it? But we have got a a red, but it's an Algerian red, actually. We do. The St. Augustine Mont du Tesla AOG 2017. So... I really like this. Um, it's yeah. it's a bit rustic, mm. leathery, sort mm. of gamey, earthy. It's got a bit of raisin fruit in a in a good way, but you've also got some nice chalky mm. tannin, and that that sort of cutting through, and and then balanced alcohol, thirteen percent, yes, which makes it yep. so perfect. And you know, I would say ideal this one with a lovely slow cooked meat casserole.
0: Yeah, and you've got a helpful little. Um map on the back as well actually funny enough which, mm. which puts it in context of where everything is where it um, but no you know it, uh, you I love your
1: maps don't you
0: love the, the the food you mentioned as well in the magazine i think you mentioned the magazine um they've got a great recipe from algeria to put which you could put with this i think it's called eskef. eskef i don't know if that's the right pronunciation but it's basically beans veg tomatoes pasta and lamb merguez sausage oh
1: yeah the, oh. that does sound I just fabulous, you mentioned the it? casserole
0: you know the, the, yeah. the, the meat this would i think this would this would pair really well with this kind of thing yeah I'd I totally. Agree. I, know, I, just, I just like the fact that this wine, again, it wasn't just rich fruit. Uh, you know, there was culture. There was and class other stuff there. Yeah, balance. Yeah, it was yeah. herbs and smoke and roasted pepper. It, just, mm. it wasn't too big a style, wasn't it? It's fundamentally yeah. medium bodied and really elegant and food friendly. You know, just just quite cultured. You know, despite the rustic edges that you mentioned, which I I think we found Had quite to intriguing. It. They add to it. To, you know, so I think it's an intriguing style. And you know, mm. if there's one thing to say about this wine, it's I would like to try more of where this came from
1: yeah yeah so just to give you an idea of pricing you can buy a Mm. duo set from the other grape for 29 pounds um or if you want the magazine as well that's 39 pounds so that particular pair includes a different Algerian red it's the Kutubia but you sort of get you get the Mm. idea and you know they're all well worth trying and the magazine is great you know it's got some great photos brilliant articles and poetry
0: great 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 poetry um We've got one final bottle here, haven't we? We have. Uh, which I brought it's all the made way. made quite back a journey. From Lebanon for you to try, as we mentioned In your earlier.
1: suitcase. It was brave, I have to say, because if that had smashed, you'd have had some very colourful shirts. it's very
0: inky style, isn't it? It is. There it we are. is. So um, this is the uh, Sept Syrah 2019 from the Batroun Hills. So this is a new area. The Bekar grows the vast majority of Lebanese wine. This area of Batroun is nearer the coast. But there's some really exciting producers there, uh, including this guy, Maher Harab. It's biodynamic. You know, he started this project as a tribute to his father, who died during the Civil War. Um, the Syrah was the first wine he ever made from his own vineyard. Oh. Uh, so it's very emotional wine for mm-hmm. him. And I remember tasting it with him there when we filmed, and he was getting very emotional. It was a really special moment. Um, and that was the 2016 Syrah. And this one is 2019. Um, I think it's amazing. What do you
1: think? I, it, it's intense. It's really <laughs> intense. My goodness, yeah. there's so much pure dark fruit, but mm. also spice. Wow. You know, it, it's, it's, it's really full on, isn't it? It's it? A re-
0: I, th- I just find it a really intriguing expression of Syrah. If you like Syrah, you've got to try this one because you've got Rhone, you've got Australian Shiraz, you've got Chilean. This is, I think, for me, unique. Uh, it's quite rare to find a Syrah expression of this style, but it's still very Syrah. It's inky, it's wild. You've got violets and black pepper and sausage. You've got what, what I notice most about this wine is grown at altitude. I think it says 950 meters in Neckla on the on the neck label. You get tense acidity and a really fine sort of abundant tannin. It's it's just very sort of brooding and savoury style and, and very, very complex. And you, you, I get the sense it will age really, really well and mm. develop. It's, it's sort of seamless. It's just so much sort of complexity. Almost, now I'm sort of tasting it thinking, almost a slightly angry wine. Do you agree with that? Is that is that taking it? A There's a kind of sense of grr here, uh, mm. which, which I love. Not everyone might love because it's a bit big in that sense. It's kind of quite... Yeah, full throttle.
1: I've never thought of a wine as angry before, but... No, um, in a good way. In a but, good way. You know, people can full be when they're angry too. positive um, <laughs> anger. Yes.
0: Just intensity. <laughs> you know, anyway, they're uh, set. Uh, we'll put a photo of the bottle. Yeah, it's in very a very cool bottle. We will be seeing really more cool of set in the future. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, there we are. A brief snapshot of these wines and the wine scene. But I think it's enough to say, these wines, these regions and countries, they are well worth checking mm, out. There's yeah. real history here. Great Great stories, people, producers, and it can all make for quite a a wine adventure.
0: Adventure is exactly the word, Um we all want a wine adventure, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah, so there we are. This is, here's here's one ready made for you. Um, you know, you can never really make predictions about these things, but you know, you think there is definitely potential for a revival of wine around the southern and eastern Mediterranean. It would be lovely to see you know, especially maybe in these higher altitude locations, yeah. we get these balanced wines. Cooler, cooler and the quality's there, the history is there, the stories are there. You know, t- to be fair, much will depend on the politics and the religion and the social pressures, but the wine potential is there.
1: I suppose it also depends on, on the interest from us as wine lovers. Um, but mm. we'd certainly, wouldn't we recommend trying wines from these places? And you can yeah. start by checking out the other grape.
0: Yeah, we're definitely up for it as we always are. Anyway, uh, thank you very much to Aggie. Thanks to the winemakers of Lebanon and Algeria. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, cheers.